This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Yuseem, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Good evening, everybody. Leadership in Action. That's our title. You've heard about it. We're Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. You happen to be tuned into Channel 132. I'm your host tonight, Mike Yuseem. I'm director of the Leadership Center here, faculty director of the McNulty uh, leadership program, and I'm in the studio with my two good friends and colleagues, Jeff Klein, executive director of the McNulty Leadership Program, and Ann Greenhall, deputy director. So I'm really pleased to be here with two friends. How are you both? <laughs> Great, Mike. How are you tonight? Okay, I'm very good. Jeff, you're okay. I'm okay. You're okay. I'm better than Ann. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, here we go. <laughs> uh, I want everybody to know we're okay. not competitive. <laughs> I want to mention now our guests. During the second hour, we're going to talk with a person who came out of um, our program here, mm-hmm. as Ann mentioned, Kyle Schroeder, who is the co-founder of a successful shaving products company. And we're going to talk with him about how he just built it from the ground up. And then once you're up, how do you stay competitive when there are a lot of people that would like to take your customers away from you? Tonight's first guest, we're going to bring him on in just a minute, is uh, Colonel Ty Sedgley, who is a professor of history at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. And we're going to talk with him about everything from the battlefield to the boardroom. And we're also going to be talking with him about how to take a team through a crisis if it happens to be engulfed in a social media frenzy, another topic very relevant to what's been going on in the U.S. the last couple days. So, uh, Ty, well, uh, Colonel Ty Sedgley, welcome to the program. Well, thank you so much. It's an honor for me to be here today. It's an honor to have you on our program. Mm-hmm. You have served your country for more than 30 years with assignments abroad, and now you're teaching uh, history at West Point. In fact, you're chair of the history department there. And, Ty, just to plunge right into it, uh, we're going to spend some time thinking about these issues historically. Let's go back and just thinking through all that you've taught about, all that you have written about in, let's make it American military history, could you pick out one or two individuals who you would say were somehow exemplary in the kind of leadership you'd like to see those coming through West Point uh, understand and hopefully absorb? And just more generally for our listeners, uh, these are people who just tell us something about leadership regardless of uh, the century or the context. So, Ty, over to you. A couple right. people who well, come to mind. Well, those are the, the two that come immediately to mind are both associated with West Point. The first is George Washington, <laughs> and who, uh, who spent an enormous amount of time here, really called West Point the key to the continent, uh, set us up as a defensive position in the American Revolution, put a great chain across the Hudson to protect it from the from the British who occupied New York uh, during that period, and and created an army out of scratch uh, of of the Continental Army, which was really the thing that saved the Republic, uh, saved that that nascent nation, the colonies, to become a republic was the Continental Army, and he created it, molded it uh, in his image to overcome enormous hardship uh, throughout the eight years of that war. I mean, that was it's our longest war really until mm. until Afghanistan. Uh, and he did keep that together. And then when he was finished, 
became mm. president and then did not take any of the, uh, the the titles of nobility and gave up office uh, when he needed to. So he's both a, a wonder, an amazing commander, a great politician, and deserving of the father of his country. And we have a, an enormous statue of him right in front of our mess hall that mm. reminds cadets every day of the leadership lessons of George Washington and the character that he is. You know, our, our mission is to educate and train, educate, train, and inspire leaders of character for the nation. And I don't think anybody has done that better than George Washington, our mm. first president and the first general of the Continental Army. Excellent. And Ty, you had a second person in mind as well. The second person in mind is Ulysses mm. S. Grant. Uh, and Grant's had a bit of a renaissance here in the last uh, decade and well-deserved. Uh, he graduated from here in the, uh, in the 1840s. And uh, when he graduated, in fact, he, he, he told uh, in his memoir, he said, Gosh, I hope that they, they I hope they close West Point. That's what he was thinking in the 18 when he was here in the 1830s because he, he didn't like the rigid discipline that was here. He was a great horseman, but then when he took over, a failed career as a businessman, failed career in many aspects until he became a general. But boy, was he a heck of a soldier! And created uh, the, the Army of the West, which won battle after battle, campaign after campaign. Uh, captured three armies during the American Revolution. And even more importantly, as, as we're finding out now, uh, was important in, in freeing African Americans uh, and supporting the, right that the rights that they had during the war and then after the war in Reconstruction. So while he certainly had pre- uh, problems as a president, his character, uh, which comes through clearly in his memoirs, which are the greatest memoirs ever written by a soldier, uh, I think show his character both on the battlefield to, to take uh, really difficult situations, like in the Battle of Shiloh, where he was really uh, defeated the first day, and Sherman comes up to him and says, "Boy, we caught hell today," and Grant only says, "Yeah, but we'll we'll get him tomorrow." And he had that sense of presence and the ability to communicate very quickly and very thoughtfully to make sure everyone understood uh, his intent. Uh, so those are the two that come to mind immediately as the two of the greatest leaders, leaders of character in our nation's history. Ty, thank you on that. I'm going to offer a quick follow-up and then open this up to my colleagues. Let's go back to George Washington. You alluded to the fact he took over uh, what became um, the Army, the Continental Army. And as I recall, he was sent by the Continental Congress to Cambridge, Massachusetts, when the forces that had come out of the battles of Lexington and Concord were still camped there on the the common, uh, the uh, the grassy area there in the center of Cambridge, Massachusetts. And drawing from his experience, uh, as he arrives, he's got a very tall order, which is to bring order out of chaos. All these Minutemen have shown up. They don't report to him in some sense or to the United States at that time. But he is charged now with pulling that... Uh, bedraggled a lot, quite a few, on the Cambridge Common into a fighting force. So put yourself in George Washington's shoes or just relate how he did go from suddenly being there, announcing his presence, to ultimately, a couple years later, <clears throat> uh, at uh, Yorktown, Virginia, bringing it to an end. Right. Well, I think it, you know, we historians uh, have to provide context. And, and he was a, a dismal failure during the what we call the French and Indian War, the Seven Years' War, was, was just defeated handily during that. And he goes up to Massachusetts as a Virginian, and almost none of those forces are, 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 from, uh, are from Virginia. So it, the, the leadership that he had to portray as this, as this sort of a patrician uh, Virginian going north to lead a, a rabble of an army 
is it's it's at least in American history, it's uh, there, there's no parallel to it, none, yep. because there was no army. He creates it out of whole cloth and shapes it in his image. And I think that's the great um, the thing that uh, Washington, as a leader and, and other great leaders we see in the army, is how quickly they take whoever they have and mold them into whether you say it's a team or an army or a business or whatever it is it's a cohesive group of of people on a common purpose willing to share sacrifices for that and and he really defeat after defeat you know when he's at the battle of uh, long island he's defeated there he is kicked out of manhattan near fort washington it is defeat after defeat, but, but every time he keeps that army together, understanding the larger strategic goal, which is if you keep the army together, if the army continues to fight, you will not lose because the, the British are 3,000 miles away, and they're having to defeat Washington's army. So he always keeps that strategic plan. And when he goes and defeats uh, the Hessians at, at Trenton, at Princeton, when he's able to do these raids, all he's doing is keeping that fighting force alive, small victories, uh, which eventually lead to this brilliant strategic insight of moving his force down to trap Cornwallis in Yorktown, yep. using the majority French force and the French Navy. So not only does he do... It not only does he bring the Continental Army together, he brings the French together uh, in a coalition. And really, you know, the only treaty we had until, until after World War II is with the French, uh, that we make a, a treaty with the French during that time. And that, that, that ability to do coalition warfare, to create your own army, to fight and defeat the greatest force uh, on, on, in the world at that time, he's got my vote. <laughs> Ty, that's really interesting. Let me remind readers that uh, we are listening to you, U.S. Army Colonel Ty Sedgley. You teach history at the U.S. Military Academy of West Point. This is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Mike Usain. I'm with Ann Greenhall and Jeff Klein. If you'd like to join us, we actually have a number you can reach us at if you've got a question. 844-942-7866. Let me give it again. 844-942-7866. Seven eight six six. Colonel Sedgley, this is Ann, and it's a pleasure to have a chance to speak with you. Thank you so much. You made an interesting comment along the way, and I'd love to follow up on that. You said that George Washington created the the army in his own image. Could you say a little bit more about what you meant by that? Right. Well, you know, here's someone who, uh, uh, again, we, we historians have to do context. I mean, he wanted to join the British Army earlier and was not allowed to. Uh, because he was a he was a colonist and he was not allowed to do that. So every aspect that Washington creates is is in his image. So uh, today we wear a blue uniform in the U.S. Army. Uh, that army blue was chosen by George Washington. So the first thing he does is he says, "This is the look, the feel of this army, which is which is blue and buff. Those were the colors of the Continental Army." Uh, second. We are going to make a real army, not one of these scraggly little things that can't fight uh, a, a fight that we would that, that the British would fight. So a linear war fight, which is the way their tactics at the time. So we're going to create a European style army, and yet, as the style as the time went on, he was able to incorporate both this regular army, this regular force, with a militia. So there wasn't uh, another army in Europe that had the ability to to to, to bring together a militia 
a sort of uh, what we would call today, which eventually would become the National Guard, but this dual military tradition of, of regulars and militia. So he was able to put those together as well. But it's this force of personality that means that at, at every turn when it seems like there is nothing left to fight for, Washington is an example that we are going to continue to fight. And I guess the other example I would put that is one of the great things about the United States Army and our military is we have never had a coup in this country. We're one of the only countries in the history of the world that has never had a coup d'etat, an overthrow of the government by the military. It's unimaginable. But, in, but it, right after the American Revolution, here just north of me in Newburgh, New York, uh, officers got together that had not been paid, and they said, uh, we are going to march on Washington to demand payment and, if necessary, take over the government uh, to, to, to ensure that we get paid. And Washington then goes and gives a speech, and he says, I have, uh, and he takes his, points at his hair and says, my hair has grown gray in service of my country. And then he puts, he puts on his glasses, which men never did in, those, in that era. It was a sign of weakness to show that you needed glasses. Put on his glasses says, I have grown blind in the service of my country. And, he, you know, an actual tear comes down his cheek, and he says, we're not, that's not who we are. We are not going to do this. And it dissipates the rebellion, what could have been a rebellion, uh, and, and it shows the, the respect that he generated through the force of his own personality. Mm. Those are great, great examples. How about Jeff? We'll get you in here. Thanks, Anne. <laughs> um, Colonel Sedgley, I had, the, uh, I had the pleasure of visiting West Point earlier in the summer and, and seeing the chain you <clears throat> referred to and, and walking the grounds. And, and I left inspired. And as Mike <laughs> and Ann know, I came back and, and began to do more reading. I hadn't read about George Washington in some time. And so I read the, the Joseph Ellis biography and a few others. <laughs> um, and and I, I'll take a little bit of a risk here because uh, I, I feel like I've only dipped my toe in the water. But as, as someone who, who thinks a lot about and who studies leadership, um, I was really struck by a lot of the stories about Washington and how they've really become a lot of, you know, the archetypes that we carry in American culture about what leadership looks like, um, what the behaviors look like, what the you know, the really the core values are. And as I say that, I know that there's been a lot of myth and a lot of projection, which has also been loaded onto Washington over time. Um, but I, I wonder if you would react to that statement, because, you know, everything from his physical characteristics and his, his height and his broad shoulders to his desire for land to his, um, you know, willingness to sacrifice and serve without salary to his, you know, desire to be amongst the troops. These these all seem like really important kind of American leadership qualities. And and and, and anyway, so I, I'd, I'd love your reaction to that. Yeah, I think it's a great point. I mean, the, the, the thing that Washington sets is he does set a style of leadership, both as a, as a general and as a president that people will refer to again and again throughout American history. So it, it's no accident that uh, when we go into the Civil War that both sides put Washington first and foremost. I mean, mm. the, in fact, the seal of the Confederacy has George Washington on it. So the, 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 and, and, and Lincoln talks of Washington the entire time. So uh, the, the idea of, of Washington as a, as a symbol of what this nation ha- can be is so important and how he executes the duties of the constitution 
by the way, one of the first ones of those duties is to put down the Whiskey Rebellion. You know, he's the, mm-hmm. one of the, the, the reasons to have the Constitution is to be able to put down a rebellion, and he leads a force of over 10,000 soldiers to put down rebellion. So he is, he, he is our archetype of what leadership looks like. But, but there's also the dark side of that. Yep. There's the dark side of Washington, the slave owner. And, and part of our, our, our national myth is that we look at the archetype in the positive sense, and we don't look at the negative sense. You know, we, we, I keep a portrait over, my, uh, over my, um, my desk of Washington, and he's at West Point. It's the only picture that we, only painting we have of Washington at West Point. And he's, he's got his um, hat doffed, and he shows his sunline. You know, it shows that he's a campaign general. He's pointing toward West Point that he made the plans for the great, the, the Gibraltar on the Hudson. And, and it really shows him as a combat commander. Next to him is his horse, and next to that is his slave. And that slave, William Lee, went with him throughout the entire time of the, of the Revolution. If he had been white, he, every city, every city in the, or there'd be cities named to him throughout the Fruited Plain. But it wasn't because that slavery was a part of who we were uh, during that time. So there is Washington, the great hero. There's Washington, the man. Uh, and and we, we, we are always good to look at both the positives and the negatives, even of our greatest heroes. And that's what makes us American, to me, is our willingness to look at our heroes and look at their, their strengths and their weaknesses, not just the hagiography, the mythology. And I love that about the study of history. I love that about our country, that we're willing to do that. And maybe just a, as a quick follow-up, I was um, I did not know, and I, w- I was struck by the fact that, to my knowledge at least, you know a lot more about this, uh, that the the private correspondence that that George Washington had with his wife Martha has mostly been lost to history. It was mostly destroyed, I think, before Martha's death. Um, what does that? What do you infer from those actions? Um, and is there yet another human side to Washington that we don't have access to? Oh, I think that's absolutely true. I just know my father-in-law, who's West Point class of '53, when he when he died did not want any of his letters to, hmm. to his mother-in-law, to his wife, my mother-in-law, that, to be published. And I think there's, a, there's this private side of everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that when I was in the Gulf War, the letters I wrote uh, to my then-girlfriend, now fiancé, I, I you know, it would be interesting. Would I, would I allow those to come out? Because it shows the most raw, the most intimate uh, part of, of, the, of the human existence. And, and again, that's what makes Washington uh, amazing. It's not just that he is this great hero, but that he was a man with, with, with you know, with, that made mistakes and that was of the flesh and, and loved a woman, and which he did, you know, mm-hmm. and I, so I think it's a, it, it makes me respect him all the more to know his humanness, his, his, uh, and the fact that, you know, maybe, maybe there's, there's some off-color things in there that, that George just wasn't willing to share with the world, or Martha, you know, it, it could have been Martha that was unwilling to do that, and, you know, there were many of the things that were lost through time that, that, we just don't know. That's why when we get them, it's fascinating. McClellan's letters, for instance, he saved from his wife. Mm-hmm. Oh, they don't paint a pretty picture of George McClellan, uh, and and that you know that has hurt his reputation because we see into him uh, in a way that we don't for other for other uh, other figures of history. Yeah, it's a it's just a great reminder of the the complexity of humanity, right? <laughs> and what what we what we save and what we reveal. Uh, Mike, back to you. Yeah, I'm going to break in and just uh, remind everybody to stick around. We're going to take a breather, a break. Uh, we're talking with Colonel Ty Sedgley, 
We've been speaking about George Washington, and I'd like, as, as we come back, indeed to spend a few minutes talking about George McClellan. You raised his name, and I offer that up because he's often much criticized by historians, probably yourself, for some of the things he did during especially uh, that one year of 1862. But I say that because I think my colleagues will agree we learned from great examples, George Washington won, but we also learn a lot from those that came up a bit short, McClellan maybe in that category. We'd also like to come back to U.S. Grant, and I'm going to ask us to talk a little bit about one Robert E. Lee. So stay with us, everybody. This is, of course, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. We will be back. Welcome back. Leadership in Action, Business Radio, powered by our school, the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel 132. <clears throat> I'm your host, Mike Usain. I'm here with Jeff Klein and Ann Greenhall. And our guest this past half hour, <clears throat> to be continued now, is Colonel Ty Sedgley, a professor of history of the U.S. at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. And before the <clears throat> break, uh, Colonel, we were referencing George McClellan, and we want to come back to U.S. Grant as well. But let's start with George McClellan. Some listeners won't actually be able to put that name in context. So say a little bit about him. And then number two, let's pick up on some of the well-known shortcomings that historians often uh, reference in his leadership, keeping in mind he was serving the country, and we do need to recognize that fact for sure. Colonel, over to you. Statues in Washington, Philadelphia that highlight McClellan. He was very popular with his troops, but McClellan was uh, a graduate of West Point who got out of uh, the Army after the Mexican War. He served as, uh, really started railroad businesses. He's a very successful businessman, very successful in creating railroads. Uh, and then in 1861, came back into the Army uh, and took over for Winfield Scott as the commanding general, commander-in-chief of the, of the Army. And he did do a great job in creating the Army of the Potomac. I mean, he was an, an amazing organizer. He he did it, he was he did a great job of training the, the soldiers. So all of the things that would go into the the idea of preparing an, an, an army for war that was McClellan's mm. real skill. The problem is when he got into battle, it was almost as though he loved those troops too much, and he was unwilling to take the risks that 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 Grant or Lee or others were were willing to take to have a decisive action. And the lack of decisiveness in itself was a form of action. And he, despite uh, his overwhelming eye, he had lots of, of numbers compared to his opponents. He was never able to use them decisively, even when he had, like at Antietam, not only the numbers, but even the intelligence to know that he had the most amount of people. So historians have generally uh, put him, rated him low on the scale of Civil War generals. It also didn't help that he was insubordinate to Abraham Lincoln and called him a guerrilla, a baboon. And that, uh, combined with his very honest memoirs and letters to his wife, have led historians to think of him uh, in less glowing terms. Great. And, and before I pass the baton on to Anne here, uh, again, that was a, just a great overview of General George McClellan. Offer up, if you would, the same on Ulysses S. Grant. Well, it almost as though Grant is the inverse. He had a, a completely unsuccessful stint as a, 
except when he is on horseback. Um, and, and in the Mexican War, he did very well there. He comes in, could barely get a commission in Illinois. Uh, he's from Ohio. He has. Uh, he may have had trouble with binge drinking. We're not sure about that. And he comes in the army, and it's just as though he is meant to be a soldier. And everyone sees him, and he is just has this commanding presence and the ability to write orders that are direct and unbelievably uh, organized. Isn't even the right word. You understand what he means in a way that I've never read anyone else who could write so clearly. So he gives those orders, and he has a relentlessness and unwillingness to accept anything except except complete victory. And that ability to translate a strategic view, the other thing he had by the time he takes over in 1864, is that he has a strategic view on how to end this war, and that is to go after Lee's army and to defeat Lee's army. But he captures three armies. No other, nobody else could capture one. So he is the great soldier of that era and, and, and almost any era in American history. Ty, if we could fo- follow up on that, can can you help us understand uh, the clarity and the directness of his orders? Yes, it, it is really remarkable, and I, I've read several of them. We use them in class, and what it was is that he could use a very, the, in the shortest possible term, tell a commander what he wants to do and why. So today in the army, we call it a task and a purpose. So what did he want them to do, and then why was this important? task and purpose. And that's what he was able to do way before we we actually articulated that. So it may be, I want you to cross the river and uh, or in the hornet's nest. He gave a, an order to a unit to go to the hornet's nest at the Battle of Shiloh. Stay there. And I know that there is no, they're going to be surrounded and you, you will probably, your entire command will be captured or die. But if you allow that to happen, the rest of the army will be able to come up from Pittsburgh Landing, where they were coming, and, and able to save the day. So, And then he was able to give those very specific orders to that one unit. And they, they didn't survive that engagement. But because of their sacrifice and Grant's clear orders, the, the Army, the U.S. Army, then carried the day and was able to, to come to victory. So he was just extraordinary, extraordinarily specific uh, in, in getting his intent across, not just the task, but the intent. Mm, so good. That's a wonderful example. Now, I'm picturing, am I right or wrong about this, that those orders are then communicated through the ranks. So it's, is it, it's one thing to have a clear intent. It's another thing for that clear intent to be communicated through the organization. So how did he manage to do that? Well, that's a great point. So if you can think about Civil War leadership, at the, by the time it got down it would, it would go to, let's say, a division commander, someone in charge of several thousand uh, soldiers, uh, and that would be relayed to the, the colonel of the regiment. And the colonel of the regiment would probably be in the front, leading them from the front. So it, it, it would require an amazing amount of, of uh, communications, of lateral communications to get this word out. And then to these very raw soldiers who had, had very little training, the fact that they would stay and continue to fight in this situation. Many of them immigrants, uh, later in the war, African-Americans, who would fight in there is, is, is equally extraordinary. So I, I, we continue to go back to the Civil War because it is America at its best and its worst. And we see it at its best in the, in the, in the United States Army. I try not to use the Union Army. It's, it's the United States Army and its willingness to continue to fight to preserve the country. Hmm. Oh, so good. Jeff, come join us. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> mm. um, 
Colonel, I would I'd be curious, and if we stay on the the Civil War motif here for a second, I know you have written uh, a great deal about the Civil War and about African American history, um, both during the war and at West Point. And you have a video lecture um, that I I had the the privilege of viewing along with I've heard about 25 million other folks <laughs> on on Facebook and YouTube, which addresses you know a question which seems to rise periodically, um, which was what was the Civil War really about? And and so the the title of your video lecture is was the Civil War about slavery? And and I wonder if you could just give us a few of the headlines, um, you know, from from your perspective. Sure. I, this is one of the things that for American historians, it, it's very clear um, that slavery was the cause of the war. And, and it, you don't have to believe me or other historians. The, the, the states that seceded were very clear in their intent. Mm-hmm. Mississippi said this is the greatest material interest in the world. Texas said we're fighting to preserve the benefits of African slavery. South Carolina said that, that, that slavery was the greatest benefit to mankind. It's a positive good. So most of the states in the South wrote these documents, and the vice president of the Confederacy, um, Alexander Stevens, said that that slavery is the cornerstone of the Confederacy, that that, that white supremacy is why we're fighting this war. And so, listen, I I grew up uh, believing uh, a, a different story. I went to Washington and Lee University. I'm from the South. But the evidence is overwhelming and clear that slavery caused the Civil War. And after the war, there was a, a really, uh, a, a, I mean, it was a, there was a group of people in the South uh, and then elsewhere to try to change this idea that it was about states' rights. Mm-hmm. But if you scratch the veneer of any other reason, states' rights, for instance, it was a states' rights to have slavery. Many of the northern states were, in fact, uh, were in fact for states' rights. They didn't want to bring slaves to, to the north, even though the... Fugitive Slave Act allowed that. So it, it, there are many different facets of why people believe it's not slavery, but it, this is one of those things where facts matter, and the evidence is, is, is clear and overwhelming that slavery caused the Civil War. Thank you, Colonel. And, and you know, I, I, I want to maybe kind of broaden out a little bit from, from that perspective. One of the things that I was I was kind of really intrigued about, and, and I'll admit I, I didn't know existed um, until we started to do the prep for this show, is that you're also a, a creator and series editor for a number of digital primary source readers that, that take on really some of the, the bigger issues in American culture, the civil rights movement, um, gender and war. Mm-hmm. And, and so could yeah, you talk... I wanted to hear more about that one. Yeah, it, it, could you <laughs> talk a little bit first about the the impetus to create these readers and then maybe some of the impacts or reactions that, um, you know, that, that you've received? Sure. Well, our, um, the, the chief staff of the Army, sort of the CEO of the Army, uh, talked to our college president and said that... Uh, Sexual harassment, sexual assault are, are two of the biggest problems that we're are problems that we're facing in the army, and we need to make sure that we're we're going after it, that we're trying to fix it in any way we can, and we try to figure out how in the history department we can support our bosses. Uh, we're we're part of an obedience-based organization here in the army, uh, and and I wanted to figure out how we could do that, and so we got together with our team here in the history department and said, you know. Uh, what a person researches and writes can change their character. We're in the character development business. Mm. And if we give them uh, on, on either race or gender and the primary sources on that to look at what, what both the civil rights leaders said or in, in, in the women that were fighting in war, we can and then have them write about it. 
we can we can change their character. We can change the way they're viewing the the their country and themselves. And we can start conversations about sexism, about racism, based on primary sources in the past that makes it a safe conversation, but a dynamic one. And we've had really great success. Of and it's fascinating. I mean, so one of our gender topics was uh, was gender. Uh, I think it's uh, donut dollies about women in in Vietnam. And there were we show the video in this digital primary source of a fashion show that army nurses put on. So it it shows that how much that gender roles have changed and that they're social and cultural constructs that change over time. And we could show that through the use of video and images and primary source documents and then have cadets really, I mean, they have to, 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 to synthesize this in a paper. It, it, it changes you. It changes me. So I know in my own case of writing about mm. the Civil War and African-American history and Confederate history has changed my view. And we wanted to see if that would happen to cadets. And I think we've had some positive feedback of that. But, but we can make a difference, even in a single history course, by changing what people research and write on. Yeah, and, and I promise I wasn't introducing this topic in a self-serving way at all. But as we entered the show today, um, you know, one of the reactions I've been having today is, you know, we just we've um, as a nation are going through the Kavanaugh hearings right now is how much we could all benefit from a direct a direct viewing and a direct synthesis of the primary source material as opposed to the the distilled opinions which tend to flood our inboxes and social media and everything else. So I, I, I applaud the methodology um, as you're, you're working with your cadets. Well, well thank you. It, it really has. We, we've done uh, civil rights. We've done gender and war. We're working on immigration. And we're, we're trying to look at those from a historical standpoint and to look at how we've changed over time and to look at how people have grappled with these issues uh, throughout our history. And and it provides context. It provides a way of, of having these conversations. And it does change you. If you read George Wallace's 1963 inauguration speech, Segregation Now, Segregation Today, Segregation Forever, cadets are our students. have never They don't know about that. And, and they should. They should know about, about where we have been. Uh, it, it makes it easier to figure out where we should go. Uh, great. I'm going to intervene briefly. I'm Mike Hussein. You're listening to Leadership in Action, of course. We're talking with Colonel Ty Sedgley, a professor of history at the United States Military Academy at West Point. Ann Greenhall and Jeff Klein are both with us. And with a few minutes yet to go, Colonel, I'm going to ask us to take all that you've been saying, and if you wouldn't mind taking us with you into the classroom around this question. You're professor of history, you're head of the history department, and you're in charge, of course, is to work with your cadets so they they develop their character and they their leadership along the way. If you could give us just four or five of your thoughts on the tactics of using or how will you use history to develop character, to instill leadership. So over to you, sir. Right. Well, I, I, that's a great question and one that we <laughs> that we we grapple with every day. We we are uh, an innovative history department and in that we we don't just get in a lecture hall and talk to 500 people at a time. We have 16 people maximum in a class, and we, we, we grapple with the tough issues every day in the class. I'll tell you one that I'm, I'm really working with now is how to, in, to integrate role-playing uh, and primary sources and games and competition into the study of history. So I, we're, we're, hmm. I just finished a course last semester talking about the French Revolution, and we had people that were on 
either side, that were the clergy, that were the, the monarchy, that were the uh, army, and then they were having to grapple by reading the primary sources, taking a position. Each one had a role to play, and then they had to, to, to convince each other about what was the right way to do it. So I found that the pedagogy, the style of teaching that, that I really enjoyed, is to make cadets the, the focus or the students the focus by taking on roles and then arguing those out. Right now we're doing that with Yalta, which was the 1945 conference hmm. with uh, Stalin, um, uh, FDR, and Churchill. And each one, each one, there's a team from the U.K., from the U.S., the USSR, and they are then arguing between them to try to figure out how to get there. It, it, it teaches teamwork. It teaches critical thinking by using the primary sources, and there's competition involved as well. And I think your, the business school's case study method is such mm-hmm. a great way of doing that. So what we're doing is, is sort of test, turning that around a little bit to, to use that style, but to use it in a competitive form. Our students love to compete, uh, that there's, there's some winning there. Um, so I think that's one of the main reasons, one of the main ways we do. Another one that we do is to bring issues of, that are part of American society now and look at it from a context in the past, so whether that's race uh, or gender or uh, Confederate monuments or whatever those are, to give us a broader understanding of how we got to where we were. And those critical thinking skills of learning, uh, in a way, inductive reasoning. So in other words, ask a question, gather evidence, and then answer it. I think that's what a historian, mm-hmm. a historically-minded person can bring to, uh, uh, can bring to any, any question. Super. Yeah. Well, Mike, uh, mm-hmm. at the uh, at the top of the hour, you suggested uh, some discussion about Robert E. Lee. So I'd like to reintroduce him. And uh, Colonel, I'd love to hear your thoughts on Robert E. Lee as a as a leader. Yeah, boy, he's a complex figure and and a complex person. Not only during his own lifetime, but especially afterwards when he was deified throughout the South. And, and I grew up with that sort of deification of Robert E. Lee. And I think you have to look at him as a life in full. And part of it is that he was a very successful military commander, both in the Mexican War and in the Civil War. Um, the problem that I have is that he, uh, he served over 30 years in the U.S. Army, um, wearing Army blue, and, uh, and then chose to fight for, uh, for, in my opinion, the wrong side. There were six U.S. Army colonels from Virginia in 1861. They were all West Point graduates. Five of them stay with the United States, and only one leaves, and that's Robert E. Lee. And as Grant said about the Confederates, they fought so hard, so well, for so long, for such a, for such a bad cause. And we can't separate the man and the great military commander, Robert E. Lee, from the cause with which he fought, which was to create and maintain uh, a slave republic. And even more from a soldier's perspective, and I've been a soldier for nearly 35 years, is that my mission from the Constitution is to uh, support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. I take that very seriously. I've taken that oath of office. Uh, I've given it hundreds of times, and I, I, I believe it down to the marrow of my bones. And to, um, to resign your commission and fight against the United States, to, to destroy the United States, is, is something that uh, I struggle with. And uh, in the end, that... that that is as part of the problem that I think of that Robert E. Lee has is that is that now on the other hand, after the war he went to a small school in Virginia and was a college president, a very uh, 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 started teaching professional school, uh, started teaching sort of journalism there and 
and did some business as well. So it's a life in full that you've got to look at. But but that mm-hmm. idea of fighting for the Confederacy, I think, is is the one that, as a soldier, an American soldier, I had the most problem with. Now, I know this is a this is a big topic, but just if you could touch on it, since you've uh, you know since we're talking about Robert E. Lee. Just thoughts about uh, you know monuments in his honor. Well, I think it's a it's an interesting one to think about. That so, and it depends on there, there's a lot of depends because you know historians have to have to bring complexity into this. But at Washington and Lee University, it was named after Lee in 1870. Um, that that was early, but most of the monuments went up in from 1890s to 1920, and that was a period of uh, of white supremacy when African Americans were were systematically denied the vote through violent terror and uh um uh, and, and and legal jim crow and so those are those monuments often go up and they are put up to support white supremacy and you know i, I those I, that is wrong it's just wrong and so they were a form of what we call today the lost cause of the confederacy myth uh to support um the disenfranchisement of african americans and and the and the violent terror through lynching that occurred during that period, and that's awful. Now, what should we do about this? That, it's a local community thing. We, we're not a centralized government, and so the the idea that we're, there's going to be a centralized solution to this problem, I think, is is not. The, it just can't happen. But I do think that we need to uh, to look at this more carefully. My, my, if you have a second, my seventh grade textbook from Virginia had a the cover of the seventh grade textbook in Virginia history that I took had a, a, a white person and an, Afri- an African person on a ship shaking hands. So what it showed was that these, was a, these slaves were entering into a social contract with their white masters, and it said that masters and slaves had an affection for each other. I mean, this is just not true, but that's what I grew up with as a boy in Virginia. So we have to be more honest before we can, we can get beyond the problems that we're having. Thank you so much. As we've been in, engaged in this conversation, Colonel, over you know the course of the last forty-five minutes or so, um, yeah, I, I've been struck by your uh, your your narrative abilities and your storytelling abilities, and and uh, we spend a lot of time, Ann and I, with Mike Yuseem, who is also quite the narrative <laughs> storyteller, and, and so I, I notice it. First of all, it doesn't seem like you uh, are busy enough or, or possibly <laughs> taking on enough roles. But I, I also notice that you oversee the, at West Point the Center for Oral History, uh, and I wonder if you would talk a little bit about the place that oral history has within within the culture and within education. Oh boy, I tell you, we we love our Center for Oral History, and, and we say here that every soldier has a story, and we, we capture mainly the story of soldiers, but but also uh, people that love them as well. But the oral history tradition, at least for us too, is these are all on high def video, all on a, on a website, the West Point Center for Oral History, and and we talk. Uh, it's amazing to see people at all walks of life, but particularly those that are you know that are in their 70s and 80s, talking about. The, the, the period of their life that was the most valuable, not the most val- valuable is the right word, just that, that imprinted upon them. And when you see them uh, talking about this, uh, it, it, it's moving in a way that, uh, that it's hard to describe unless you can see it. And, and it, it really runs a gamut of, of different aspects of life. And we, we also talk to businessmen, the business people, about what West Point and the Army meant for their business career, sort of sure. a transition of how they transition between them. But, but I love the, the, the oral history and what it gives us to use in the classroom 
to use in our digital textbooks, what it gives the people that go through that process. And then the long term is, uh, what, boy, wouldn't I have loved to have had Ulysses S. Grant's oral history. <laughs> right. Oh, yes. Would, could you imagine that? Oh, wow. Exactly. Washington. <laughs> yep. Wow. And so I'm hoping that, who knows, if the people that we're talking to now, because uh, I'm probably teaching, I could be teaching another grant right now, because the, the, the caliber of the young men and women that we have at West Point are, are just, just astounding, uh, just unbelievable that these young men and women choose to come here knowing that they're going to go into harm's way and want that challenge, want that leadership, want that character development. Uh, and so I just feel very, very lucky to be serving with them. And the Center for Oral History helps us capture those stories. Colonel, with about a minute to go, let me take that question and just throw it right back at you. Um, over your 30-year career now in uniform, you've served in Germany, of course, the U.S., Italy, the Balkans, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, and beyond. And looking back uh, on your various uh, periods of service and locations of service, is there one that stands out more than others that were formative in your own thinking about who you are, where you're going, and your service to the country? Well, well, I have, I have, I have served all over the world in war and peace. Uh, I'm, I'm originally a tank officer. I was in armor. I've been in infantry, and and they, I think they've all sort of they've done that. Mm. What's been amazing for me as a as a historian is usually those jobs only lasted for a year or two. What's been amazing about being a historian here is that I've been able to gain expertise. And I've been li- I was listening to you both, all three of you, and the expertise that you have gained doing a job for many, many years. And I think the thing that has changed me the most was the ability to gain expertise and then try to to give that expertise to 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds. Mm-hmm. That is very, very difficult, but it gives me skills in, in hopefully a narrative tradition because you have to tell stories. That's the way people learn. So I, I have tried to translate what I've learned into a storytelling way that people can understand uh, and relate to. And, and if you can relate to an 18 to 20-year-old, I think you can relate to anybody. But, but I will say that putting on the uniform every morning uh, is an honor for me every day. And the most important part of my uniform uh, is where it says U.S. Uh, we have a great army because we have a great country, and we represent that country to the best of our ability. But there's no doubt that, that we have a great military because we represent the United States of America. Colonel, that's a very good note to end on. So, Colonel Sedgley, thank you very much for speaking with us. We thank you for your service, of mm-hmm. course, as well. And if listeners would like to pursue any of the above, find out more about uh, your, your many works and what you're doing at West Point, what's the best place for them to go? Well, I, I think the, the one thing that our digital work is really impressive, it's the westpointhistoryofwarfare.com, which is a uh, a 71-chapter digital textbook that has animated maps, 3D images, that talks about the history of war, uh, really from Plato to NATO and Afghanistan. So I think the West Point History of Warfare is a great place to start. Great. Very good note to end on. Check that out, everybody. I want to just now close down for a few minutes, but don't go anywhere. We're going to come back after a short break. We're going to be talking with a person who has launched a successful company. There's content in both those words. He launched successfully the company, and it's gone on to be a success. So stick around. I'm Mike Usain. You, of course, are listening to Leadership in Action with Ann Greenhall and Jeff Klein. Business radio powered by our school, Sirius XM, Channel 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.